Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And just before we start the introductions to our speaker and introduction to the topic for today, I wanted to uh, have Megan Coilwright, Dr. Coilwright, come and talk to us because today, as you may know, is International Women's Day. Started in 1975, and uh, Dr. Coilwright's going to tell us about some of Dartmouth's activities in this regard. Thank you. Thank you so much for just the invitation to say a few words about International Women's Day and Dartmouth Hitchcock's involvement in this area. As you all know, we've had for about two decades nearly equal representation among medical students between men and women. And yet we don't see that translated in our internal medicine residencies, in our specialties, and certainly in our leadership. So it's not that we don't have a pipeline. We have a leaking pipeline. And some of that is because of the impact of gender and sexual harassment. And actually, just a couple days ago, the director of the NIH, Francis Collins, issued a public apology about the NIH's role in not holding people accountable. And he said, sexual harassment will now be seen as a breach of research integrity. So we have a big change in the conversation. And I just want to highlight Dartmouth Hitchcock's role. There's a national movement that was launched on March 1st called Time's Up Healthcare. And it is a mod modeled after Time's Up Entertainment that was launched in January of last year. And there were only five academic medical centers that were early signatories to this movement. And one of them was Dartmouth Hitchcock under the leadership of Joanne Conroy. I'm one of the 50 founding members of Time's Up Healthcare. And it's a pretty neat agenda about how to get more women and other diverse voices into our research into our policy recommendations, and into leadership in medicine. And so I urge you to take a look at that. And I look forward to April when we'll have more extended conversations with one of our guest speakers here. So thank you for the moment to mention that. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for your activities to represent us. Thanks. Um, to get credit for today's uh, lecture, QXKM is what you text in. That was flashing before, but I remind you to do that for your CME credit. We're delighted to have Dr. Denker here uh, visiting us and enlightening us this morning. And to introduce him will be Dr. Brian Remillard. Brian is an associate uh, professor of medicine here at Geisel, and he is the section chief of renal hypertension. Brian, come and tell us about your colleague, our new friend, Dr. Denker. Uh, thanks, Rich, and welcome, Brad. So Brad is a real kindred spirit. We, we've seen each other hundreds of times, but only in person uh, just, just recently. Uh, Brad is uh, at, at Beth Israel, and we've had a, an ongoing teleconference with Beth Israel since 1995, every month where we present cases back and forth. And uh, we had dinner last night and discovered that Brad followed my, I, I was a year ahead of him in fellowship, and we went. I was at the Beth Israel, and he was at the Brigham, and we followed each other around. But in any event, Brad, um, Brad trained in SUNY and Syracuse and for his medical education and then went to Johns Hopkins um, and had an auspicious year of research where he worked with Peter Agre, who actually came here for Renal Week one time. He's the discoverer of water channels and got a Nobel Prize for that. And you were on the seminal paper that did that. So if things were true to the Upper Valley, you would have retired at that age, and I would have seen you on your, I would see you on your bike, and you'd say, I'm a consultant now, <laughs> uh, which is 90% of the people I see biking. But in any event, um, he, he didn't stop there. He, he went on to uh, the Brigham and had a, uh, had a research lab there, and then took over as clinical chief at Beth Israel. 
and uh, is running the clinical division there. So we had a lot of interesting talks last night about RVUs and telemedicine and, and this sort of thing. Um, I'm really excited because last week I was down at Beth Israel and did renal rounds or renal grain rounds. And Beth Israel has agreed to be a partner in what we're trying to do at uh, University uh, Universitaire de Mirabelay to, to build the first renal fellowship in Haiti and to make that a center of reference for, for renal. And both on the research side and on the clinical side, they're all in to help us out. So it's, uh, it's a great partnership because we've known each other for so long virtually. And, uh, but it's a pleasure to have you here today, and we're anxious to hear about the treatment of hypertension. Okay, I think I'm turned on. Thank you for the kind words and the kind introduction, and it's really a pleasure to be up here and meet a whole bunch of uh, new friends, as, 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 as you heard. Um, so my goal for the next 45 minutes or so is to take what sounds like a very simple topic, hypertension, and uh, refresh your memory about some of the landmark uh, recent studies um, that have greatly influenced the way we think about hypertension and its treatment. I'm not going to leave you with any magical bulleted answers at the end because it still remains quite um, controversial and uh, technically difficult to implement um, blood pressures um, recordings in, in, in the right way. So I don't have any disclosures, and I'm going to use the mouse to, to point. Um, so what we'll do in the next little bit is just go over some definitions, epidemiology, and remind you of recent guidelines. Um, this is very bread and butter, but a brief review of the benefits of lifestyle modifications on blood pressure, something in busy clinics uh, we often don't pay enough attention to, but, um, but we should, particularly um, because of the proven benefit. And then I'm going to walk you through um, a couple of the major landmark randomized controlled trials that look at mortality, cardiovascular risk. And as a nephrologist, we're very interested in the effects of these blood pressure changes on renal failure progression. And I had trained with the notion you know, that the lower the blood pressure, the better for progression. And it turns out that may not be true, and that there's even the potential um, of overdoing it. Um, so we will touch upon um, these major outcomes in, in light of the SPRINT trial, which was a high cardiovascular risk population, but importantly not diabetic. I'll review very briefly some older studies and then the SPRINT data in the elderly, um, and then we'll do chronic kidney disease with and without proteinuria. I won't specifically talk about the MDRD trial, but I'm going to intersperse these trials with some uh, recent meta-analyses and systematic reviews that support some of these conclusions. And then we'll spend a little bit about diabetes and finish with the devil in the details about um, measuring blood pressure and which ones we should pay attention to. So this is an older slide um, from NHANES data showing that as the population ages, uh, the prevalence of hypertension increases. So that as we get up to our 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, more than half the population um, will, will develop hypertension, uh, the definition of which we'll, we'll come, to, come to in a moment. And this is true in all ethnic populations with some differences amongst them. Now, this is what started um, the cardiovascular um, excitement and importance and, and focus on blood pressure. These were two studies now over 25 years old um, published in The Lancet and JAMA. 
And what it did at the time was take nearly a million patients um, that were um, studied in 61 prospective observational studies and looked at the mortality um, based on blood pressure. These were not intervention trials, um, but were outcome trials. And what was found was that each increase in blood pressure of 20 systolic or 10 diastolic doubles the risk of cardiovascular disease, starting at a blood pressure of 115 over 75. So more recently, we've been focused on even lower blood pressures. And this is old data. I'm showing that maybe that really is um, the right reference range. Now, this is just one example from those studies looking at stroke mortality um, as it correlates with blood pressure and age. So here we have um, systolic blood pressure uh, going up by 20. And regardless of your age, there's essentially a doubling of the um, stroke mortality risk for every 20 millimeter change in systolic or similarly in diastolic. Furthermore, as we've all known intuitively, but is really shown dramatically on this slide, is that the absolute risk in these different groups goes up dramatically um, as we get older. So this is, again, from that same uh, landmark papers from 25-plus years ago, um, showing this uh, dramatic effect on uh, cardiovascular outcomes. And as a nephrologist, I have to put in end-stage renal disease. This is, um, this is clearly one of the major other end-organ manifestations of hypertension. Uh, this is old data from the Mr. Fit blood pressure screening trial of over 300,000 men. Um, and the definitions of these stages of hypertension are not that critical because they've changed over time. But as hypertension gets more severe, the incidence of end-stage renal disease or death goes up dramatically with odds ratios of 11, 6, 3, 2, and then um, the baseline of 1. What I'd also like to point out here is that when you look at end-stage renal disease and hypertension, other than this group, this is something that, not, that does not develop overnight or in a three- or four-year study, something um, true of the SPRINT trial that we'll come to. This takes years um, to develop, and I think um, that's a big flaw or a big problem in interpreting some of the renal failure data from these more recent trials. So what are the current uh, definitions and guidelines? I'll have a subsequent slide summarizing the guidelines from other uh, societies in, in a moment. But this is what the American Heart came out with after the SPRINT trial. Um, and it was somewhat controversial, probably still is, and dramatic in the sense that now a normal blood pressure is defined as less than 120 uh, millimeters of mercury systolic and less than 80. The 120 to 129 range is now considered elevated uh, blood pressure. And then hypertension, um, now defined as stage 1 in the 130 to 139 or 80 to 89 diastolic, and stage 2 above that. 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitors, um, something we're doing a lot more of. I'm not sure um, locally, but it's also a wonderful, a wonderful tool. And later on, we'll talk about some of the pros and cons of that. And the definitions um, are, shown, are shown here. So this range of elevated blood pressure is now considered mild hypertension. And that has huge implications for us, um, which I'll summarize on, on a subsequent slide. But this is what the American Heart put out for characterizing uh, folks in this high-risk high population. 
So elevated blood pressure here, 120 to 129, stage one hypertension. And this is all based on a cardiovascular risk score that primary care may use in the nephrology world had not been using it. And we could say that a lot of our patients are automatically high risk because they have chronic kidney disease. But this is the way the American Heart um, uh, defined these patients that were at elevated risk and should warrant treatment um, if they're in this range. Um, and it was a cardiovascular risk score of greater than uh, 10%. And interestingly, this is not the criteria that was used in the SPRINT trial, um, which was the Framingham risk score, and they are slightly different. So the implications of this change, and this was, um, this was an editorial in the New England Journal um, back a little, oh, I guess a little over a year ago now, that if we use the previous definition defined by the JNC7 as greater than 140 or greater than 90, there was about 72 million Americans um, with hypertension, or 32% of adults. If you use the new definition, now it's 103 million, um, and it's nearly half the adult population with a projected increase of an additional pharmacologic need of over 4 million prescriptions. So there's, there's, a, there's a cost to this, um, and, and that feeds the controversy. Um, so just for fun, if I gave you, if you had a, a person in clinic, a 55-year-old African-American male with hypertension um, on a single drug and his blood pressure was 130 over 78, what would you estimate his, his cardiovascular risk score? Just a show of hands, 3 to 8, 9 to 10, 11 to 14. Who votes 3 to 8? Okay. Who votes 9 to 10? About half. 11 to 14? About the other half. And greater than 15. So this is just a screenshot, um, and it comes out at about uh, a little over 11%. So this is a high-risk patient with some, um, with some standard cardiovascular cholesterol numbers, age, whether they're on medications, et cetera. What if it was the same patient and he was white? Same scenario. Same numbers. Who thinks it's 3 to 8? 9 to 10? 11 to 14? Okay, it's three. It's a huge difference. So these, this is just to point out that, that this is something I think all of us are, need, to, need to become a little bit more intuitive with and to use the, and to use the calculator. Um, so I've talked a little bit about the American Heart Association guidelines, and really they define the goal as less than 130 over 80 for everyone. It's pretty easy to remember. Um, I'll point out that... Um, this is somewhat unique amongst um, other societies around the world and, of course, the previous JNC-8 guidelines. Now, JNC-8 was criticized because it only included randomized controlled trials and excluded the large body of observational data. Um, and one can quibble with that, but they were trying to be purists in terms of only using randomized controlled trials. The other thing about JNC-8 was that it came out before the SPRINT trial. Um, and we'll look at some meta-analyses of the studies that have included that. But here's Hypertension Canada. Um, they use a lower goal for diabetes as, as we had done previously. The American College of Physicians and the American Family Practice Society, 140 over 90. The European Society of Hypertension and Cardiology, pretty much 140 over 90 across the board. Um, this one has a, a star because age is, varies from these societies. Some define it as above 65, some define it as above 75. So that one's a little hard to compare. And then the NICE, the um, National Institute for Health and Education Excellence Guidelines. So 
So you're, on, you're still on reasonably sound footing if you choose to follow these other guidelines. Um, and the question is, how will these guidelines change over time? So that's kind of a brief update on um, current state of guidelines and, and blood pressure targets based on society. And we'll go over some of the evidence behind them. I wanted to take just two or three minutes um, and remind everyone about the benefits of lifestyle modifications. These are, of course, um, critical components of all clinical trials. You know, the trial effect is quite a significant one, and a lot of it comes from uh, from from the um, repeated reminders and um, interventions on lifestyle. So the main ones are weight loss, diet, particularly with a focus on salt and alcohol, other over-the-counter drugs, and exercise. Um, weight reduction, about a 5 to 10 millimeter mercury drop um, for every 10, 10 kilograms of weight loss. I tell my patients, for every pound you lose, we can hope for about a half of um, a half a point a drop in your in your in your blood pressure. You lose ten pounds, we'll get five points, um, and that can sometimes be motivating. Sodium restriction hard to do, um, but also has benefits, and all of these have been shown in in pretty well done studies as well as physical activity. Just to give you some frame of reference, this is what I use in the clinic when I'm talking to patients about salt. Basically. One teaspoon of salt is your total daily allowance. That's about 2,300 milligrams or 100 milliequivalents, and you'd like to be less than that if you have high blood pressure. Um, that's hard to do, um, um, particularly if you don't pay attention to labels. Um, the only way to know for sure whether people are complying with that is really to look at the, at the urinary excretion, which we do, unfortunately, not very frequently for a variety of reasons. Caffeine, not a major player. There can be an acute rise in people who may um, not drink um, regularly but then have one before they come to the clinic. Little no effect in habitual coffee drinkers, and at least in the nurses' health study, um, significant in intake of coffee or black tea was not associated with a risk of hypertension. Lots of drugs, some of them prescribed, some of them over-the-counter, um, that can raise blood pressure. Uh, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, well-described. They promote sodium retention, amongst other, um, other effects uh, on the kidney. EPO, calcineurin inhibitors, et cetera. Um, certain foods, uh, licorice, particularly the true Belgian licorice, can create sort of a pseudo-hyperaldosterone state. Um, binge drinking alcohol, um, and then, of course, um, herbal therapies and cocaine that we should always ask about. Um, this is actually from JNC7, a nice table that they had um, for weight reduction. Benefits of the DASH diet, um, good data showing that you can reduce your blood pressure 8 to 14 millimeters of mercury um, by um, adhering to that diet. Sodium restriction, physical activity, and then moderate consumption of alcohol, the sodium restriction of about, I say two grams when I'm talking to patients, technically 100 milliequivalents is 2.3 grams. I doubt anyone can measure it that precisely. Okay, so I'm gonna shift gears and now dive into some of these studies and, um, and walk us through the, the, the classic um, and important randomized controlled trials uh, about blood pressure goals. Again, focusing on mortality, cardiovascular risk, and renal failure. And we have these uh, subgroups that I mentioned at the beginning. So, SPRINT. 
It's now um, three plus years, came out late 2015. It tested whether a systolic blood pressure of less than 120 versus less than 140 uh, could reduce the rate of cardiovascular events. There was a composite outcome um, of increased cardiovascular risk defined as cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, heart failure, um, or an acute coronary syndrome. And it was designed up front, and we'll show, I'll show you the papers for both of these, um, the outcomes in patients with and without chronic kidney disease and in older folks greater than 75 years of age at baseline. So in order to get into SPRINT, you had to have um, um, increased cardiovascular risk. You had to be greater than 50 years of age. Um, this was the definition of increased CV risk. I alluded to it earlier, a um, Framingham risk score of greater than 15%. These are the variables that go into that. You could get in if you were over 75. You were excluded if you had polycystic kidney disease. Um, and, and importantly, diabetics were excluded from this trial, as well as patients with a history of stroke. Note, um, the Data Safety Monitoring Board terminated the trial early based on the, um, the, the, um, um, the outcome of, of, of improved um, survival uh, in, in patients on the intensive arm. Uh, so instead of going for six years, it went for 3.26 years. Trial was highly effective in um, achieving blood pressure control. Here is the systolic blood pressure in the two treatment groups over the course of the trial. Uh, the final blood pressures in the intensive group was 121 systolic, 121.5 versus essentially 135. And interestingly, this, this um, difference in outcome was achieved uh, by, on average, just one more medication. That's not been my experience in my practice, that it often takes significantly more uh, meds to intensify to this, to this degree. Um, the outcome, the primary outcome here is summarized. This is the composite cardiovascular outcome. Um, this is a blow-up of this graph down here, and it shows that intensive uh, treat, treated patients um, had a significant reduction in this composite outcome of about 25%. Uh, I start these because this is what drove the composite outcome cardiovascular death, and heart failure. They're really in the subgroups of stroke, coronary syndrome, and MI, there was no difference um, between the intensive and the standard treatment group. Um, these were the number of events per year in the intensive versus, um, versus the standard treatment group. Death from any cause, very similar. Again, about a 25% reduction. Um, there were 365 deaths overall, 155 in the intensive group versus 210 in the standard treatment group. And the number needed to treat was 61 for the primary outcome, 90 for death from any cause, or 172 uh, for death for a cardiovascular death. So a few caveats about this, and we're going to look at the subgroups in a moment. Um, automated versus manual blood pressure measurements, there's a big difference. Um, and we were chatting briefly about blood pressure measurement in the clinic, how variable it is, how rooms aren't set up to do it correctly. And uh, at the end, I hope to share with you what the current state of the art is for recommended um, ideal blood pressure control. Also of interest was that the diastolic blood pressure 
in the intensively treated group dropped about 11 uh, to 67, maybe not as much as one might have expected for such intensive blood pressure control. Um, I mentioned the difference in meds, 1.8 versus 2.8. There were about 25% of patients in the intensive group that needed four plus drugs to get to target. Um, lifestyle effects and study effect of a clinical trial are always important caveats. There were numerous serious adverse events, um, but they don't quite reach statistical significance, um, but, but there was clearly a signal there. And as I mentioned, it was terminated early. So this is the subgroup um, in SPRINT for chronic kidney disease. And what's shown up here, and I apologize, it's a little bit small, but the take-home message is that in chronic kidney disease patients, um, there was no difference between the intensive group and the standard treatment group in terms of the composite renal outcome, which was the sum of these three, a greater than 50% reduction in GFR, the need for long-term dialysis or kidney transplantation. So no harm, no benefit, but again, a short study. Now, in patients that did not have CKD at baseline, there was a signal um, for the new uh, development of CKD in a significant uh, number of patients. So if you, didn't, if, you had a C, if you had a GFR greater than 60 um, at the beginning of the trial, at the end of the trial, if you had two GFRs of less than 60 separated by 90 days and... Um, um, yeah, separated um, by 90 days, and there was more than a 30% reduction, there was um, um, an increase in the number of patients um, that, that now would be classified as stage 3 CKD with an odds ratio of about 3.5. So the paper that came out on the CKD subgroup was published in uh, JSON um, later in, in 2017, and just one word about the, these patients. These are the patients with um, stage three chronic kidney disease going into the trial. They were older on average, about 72 across the board, and their GFRs were about 48, so mild stage 3A chronic uh, kidney disease. And what was found that when these patients with pre-existing chronic kidney disease were randomized to the intensive versus um, standard treatment, you got similar blood pressure separation, similar um, increase of about one med in order to achieve that goal. Again, something that I think is harder to do in patients with more advanced chronic kidney disease. Um, and the benefits were the same um, in terms of the composite cardiovascular outcome um, and all-cause death. So in other words, these patients with CKD, randomized to the intensive arm, enjoyed the same benefits that the overall population um, um, uh, saw. And there was no difference, at least defined um, in, in terms of the renal outcome, as a greater than 50% decline in the GFR or the development of end-stage renal disease. Just keep in mind the short duration, as I alluded to um, at the beginning. If you used a slightly less severe cutoff of a change in GFR of 30%, um, then it became significant. So when I think about this, you know, these are patients treated for an average three, little over three years, and the outcome was a 50% decline in GFR. So if they started, if they started at 48, they had to drop to 24 to meet the endpoint. That's rapid decline in renal function, and 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 not something we typically see um, in in our chronic patients. So my conclusions from this um, is that patients with mild CKD can, quote-unquote, easily 
obtain um, a more intensive blood pressure goal. Um, that's not been, my, again, my experience. Uh, these patients enjoy a similar um, overall cardiovascular mortality benefit. And in my opinion, there is a signal here that there may be some, some renal harm, um, and we'll come back to that. So what about the elderly? That was the other group. You know, we're always afraid of making our patients have syncope and fall, and, and I think there is a, a legitimate concern there because we've all seen it. Um, but the data suggests that we should be reasonably aggressive with these patients as well. First, the hypertension in this group is a little bit different. It's the isolated systolic uh, hypertension of the elderly, defined as greater than 160, with the diastolic typically less than 90. Um, and whether you define normal for this age as 140 or 130 is cer certainly something that you know, can be debated. Um, it's just part of the aging process that the systolic rises, the diastolic falls due to vascular compliance, the pulse pressure widens, these also correlate with these cardiovascular outcomes. And as I showed you in one of the intro slides, 60 to 80% of the population will have um, um, systolic hypertension and it is associated with these cardiovascular outcomes. So early on, this is an old paper published in JAMA, um, the SHEP, systolic hypertension in the elderly, 4,300 plus patients. This to me isn't that old, 60. <laughs> um, the mean was 72, and being an older study, um, it was actually a placebo-controlled trial with chlorthalidone. They, the goal was a 20-millimeter reduction. They achieved 143 um, systolic versus 155, and there was um, um, reduced incidence of stroke and a trend towards better uh, cardiovascular outcomes. This trial, the HIVET study, was greater than 80 years old, a mean of 84, 3,800 patients, um, with blood pressures of 173 over 91 at the beginning, and again, a placebo-controlled trial comparing uh, to a diabetic. And every category, non-fatal stroke, death, cardiovascular, um, was um, associated with favorable outcomes um, or, or better outcomes um, with blood pressures starting here on average and achieving here. Well, what about SPRINT? SPRINT was a more, I wouldn't say more rigorous, but it was, uh, it was, it was, it was, um, it was a well-done trial, and this was one of the primary endpoints. And this came out in JAMA um, shortly thereafter. It was the first paper to come out after the main SPRINT trial. And there's a couple of interesting things here. Um, first, there were about 1,300 um, participants in the intensive arm and in the standard arm. The age was identical at about 80. Initial blood pressure in both groups was 141 over 71, so already pretty good. Um, and then um, in, the intensive, in the intensive arm treated to 123, slightly higher than the group overall, versus about 135. And the outcome for this trial, it's a little bit small, but what we have here are these elderly patients graded by their frailty score. One of the things we worry about is that our older frail patients are more likely to have um, poorer outcomes. And for each of these graphs, and again, I apologize, it's small, the intensive treatment um, is uh, on the bottom and the standard above, and this is the cumulative, um, the cumulative hazard. And in all three groups, fit, less fit, and frail, the, um, the outcomes were better in the intensive treatment group. And as you notice, as you go from fit to less fit to frail, um, the composite outcome increases. So that's not surprising. 
these patients do have more outcomes. But within each group, um, regardless of your frailty status, um, the, in, the intensive blood pressure control was associated with, um, with better outcomes. Well, what about um, adverse events? So the paper says there's no statistical difference in adverse events, and technically that's true. But when you look at these adverse events, hypotension, syncope, electrolyte disorders, acute kidney injury, or falls, many of them are really flirting with, um, um, with the crossover at one, um, suggesting that it's certainly in some patients there is, there's the possibility for these to be harmful. The number needed to treat was 27 for the primary composite outcome and 41 uh, for death. So now I'm going to shift gears and get away from cardiovascular and turn my attention to um, chronic kidney disease and spend a, a couple of minutes going through the ASK trial, which was the African-American study of kidney disease, which was designed to look at chronic kidney disease progression, but was not powered for cardiovascular outcomes. So these were African-Americans. Um, in this age range with a GFR of 20 to 65. So it's one of the few studies um, really looking at a chronic kidney disease population. It's an older study. Um, it was a three by two design looking at amlodipine, aramopril, or metoprolol. Um, mean arterial blood pressure goals were in this range versus this. I remind you how to calculate mean arterial pressure. And just for comparison, um, these were the mean arterial pressures achieved in sprint, 95 versus 85. So it's a, it, sprint had lower goals for both, for both groups. The primary endpoint change um, was a change in GFR. There was a combination secondary endpoint of dialysis, 50% reduction in GFR, um, or an absolute GFR of 25 mils per minute. And it was analyzed based on um, baseline proteinuria, something that in the renal world we have known um, and is supported by this and other studies, um, increases the risk for progression as well as for cardiovascular disease. The, the DSMB terminated the um, study early due to poor outcomes in the amlodipine arm shown here. So this says the cumulative incidence of um, the GFR event, renal failure or death, um, and even within two years, the Ramapil group um, was, was faring much better than the amlodipine group. Same with the other outcomes. So that part was, was terminated. And then patients entered a trial phase and then a cohort phase. And this is now years. So we now have um, um, the results on progression in this group you know, out about a decade, which is what we would need to really see changes in, um, um, in, in renal outcomes. These, this was the achieved blood pressure goal in the standard group, um, and this was the achieved blood pressure in the more intense group. And this is a little busy slide, but what I, I want to walk you through it. We have here the cumulative uh, renal outcome of doubling the creatinine in stage renal disease or death. We have the three phases. We have years of follow-up on the bottom, and this is 10 years here. This is the 50% um, cumulative incidence line, and patients were stratified based on their baseline proteinuria. So if you didn't have proteinuria at baseline and you're followed out 10 years, there really wasn't any difference in this outcome, this cumulative renal incident outcome, uh, whether you were treated to the more intensive blood pressure control um, or the standard blood pressure control. And less than half the patients reached that endpoint. However, if you started with a protein to creatinine ratio of 0.22, which is low, and we can talk about that um, at 
after if need be. But this is mild proteinuria. Um, normal in most labs is 0.15 or maybe 0.2. Um, this group, however, A, as a group, had much worse outcomes. They were approaching 80%, 75 to 80% achieving this renal endpoint. And there was a statistically significant difference in the group that got more intensive blood pressure control with a slight reduction in, their, um, in, this, in this outcome. So taking that study with several others, including one that I took out, which is the MDRD study, if you look at CKD progression based on blood pressure goal and baseline proteinuria, there's not very many studies. This is a, um, a few years old now um, uh, meta-analysis showing that without baseline proteinuria, intensive blood pressure control versus standard blood pressure control, really no difference. But if you do have baseline proteinuria, and this includes a few additional studies, um, there was um, a benefit in terms of CKD progression. And this is five years, or now almost six years old, but it was substantiated in a recent uh, JAMA internal medicine paper um, published in 2017 that I won't show you the data for, but another updated um, systematic review. So proteinuria matters. Another meta-review that was recent is intensive blood pressure control and kidney disease progression in non-diabetics. And this included um, the SPRINT trial, the MDRD, um, the ASK trial, as well as others, over 8,000 patients. And consistent with what we've been talking about, um, there was no effect um, on the combined renal outcome except possibly in patients with baseline proteinuria and maybe non-black patients. But this group, all of these, um, this analysis for all of those patients in non-diabetics, again, reduced mortality. So there seems to be, there's a very strong signal um, that in, in renal patients, the, the benefit of aggressive blood pressure control is on, um, on mortality and cardiovascular events. This was another study that I won't go into that focused on patients with more advanced CKD and had a similar benefit on mortality, but could not find a difference in um, renal outcome. So what about diabetics? Um, the ACCORD trial, published in 2010, the Action to Control Cardiovascular Risk in Diabetes, um, the SPRINT trial was actually based on the ACCORD algorithms. They used the same drugs and the same, um, um, same protocol for, for, for the clinical trial. I talked about SPRINT first because it's more impactful um, and more recent, but it was actually based on, on this trial. And the blood pressure goals were the same, and it was looking at type 2 diabetics, it was weakened because it, it had a glycemic arm, a blood pressure arm. It was a little too diluted. And the bottom line is that they got good blood pressure controls, very similar to what was seen in SPRINT, um, the more intensive group achieving a blood pressure of 119 versus about 134. Of note, they excluded patients with advanced or even moderate chronic kidney disease with a creatinine greater than 1.5 or significant proteinuria. In this study, there were more advance, um, adverse events in the intensive group. And I'm not going to show you the data from this study because there was really no difference in the primary outcome, maybe a small benefit in non-fatal stroke. So this was kind of the state of the art when SPRINT came out and it's, maybe we were comparing apples and oranges with, with diabetics. But what came out about a year later after SPRINT was a paper, it was a little under the radar screen, but I think it's an interesting paper. Um, what this group did, it was published in Diabetes in late 2017. 
is that they went back to um, the Accord population and stratified them based on the Framingham risk score and then looked at those with the Framingham risk score greater than 15% um, and then um, assessed with a Cox regression whether those patients enjoyed any benefit in cardiovascular outcome um, in the type 2 diabetics. Um, and indeed, they did. So this is a post hoc analysis, so you have to take it with a little bit more of a grain of salt. But there's a suggestion here um, that diabetics, when stratified for cardiovascular risk, may enjoy the same benefit. Now, the ACCORD trial, and I don't, I'm not going to walk you through this, but this came out late last year um, online, which was the follow-up of the ACCORD trial. So several, there was another five-year extension uh, where blood pressure was, was one of the outcomes. And then they also looked at phenofibrate, which I won't discuss. Um, but this um, cohort phase follow-up of those ACCORD patients looked at long-term, so this is 10 years, uh, renal outcome, a combined renal outcome of worsening um, proteinuria. We don't use this term as much anymore. Doubling of creatinine, dialysis, or mortality. And there's a bit of, there's a soft signal that those treated to the more intensive blood pressure had a higher um, incidence of these adverse renal outcomes. So again, needs to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt but another signal that's also in SPRINT um, that intensive blood pressure control in terms of a renal outcome um, may not be, and it breaks my heart to say that because we really want to slow down uh, the progression of kidney disease, but if we can keep our patients alive, uh, um, I don't think we could argue that that's more important. So here's kind of a high-level summary of these because uh, I know it gets confusing to keep all these numbers in mind. So what I did was I just summarized SPRINT, ASK, and ACCORD, looked at cardiovascular um, disease in terms of the underlying patient population, whether it included diabetics, chronic kidney disease, and the elderly, and then just a word about potential adverse events. So here's the blood pressure differences in SPRINT versus ASK versus ACCORD. Uh, SPRINT clearly showed a mortality reduction, um, driven mostly by congestive heart failure improvement and, and overall death, did not include diabetics. Um, there was no benefit slash harm uh, in terms of chronic kidney disease progression, but, but a short study. Um, similar benefits in the elderly. There was a, a signal for causing new onset CKD. People are debating whether this is just hemodynamic. There was a JCI paper looking at urinary biomarkers and arguing because the acute markers of injury weren't elevated, maybe this is hemodynamic. I wouldn't Personally, I wouldn't put any stock in that at this point. Um, the ASK trial was, was underpowered for cardiovascular disease, did not include diabetics. Um, if you had proteinuria at baseline in the cohort phase, there was um, a slight improvement in that combined endpoint, no reported um, um, harm. And then the initial ACCORD study, only in the post hoc analysis, not in the initial trial, was focused on diabetics. These patients were excluded, as, as were elderly, and maybe a signal for harm in the cohort phase. So my conclusions from this, and supported by some of these systematic reviews that have come out in the last few years, is number one, that intensive blood pressure control reduces mortality in non-diabetic kidney disease, possibly in diabetics if you believe the um, um, if you are willing to uh, give, give credence to that cohort phase of the ACCORD follow-up. 
Intensive blood pressure control, unfortunately, does not reduce CKD progression uh, in non-diabetics unless there's proteinuria. Um, intensive blood pressure control may have a negative effect in, 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 the, in, in patients developing new onset CKD uh, and possibly progression in both diabetics and non-diabetics. So I think we're doing well for time, um, and there will be time for questions I, at, at the end. So I want to take the last few minutes and, um, and talk about blood pressure measurement. And I was going to put in uh, the tables from the American Heart about how long patients should be sitting, their back, you know, sitting on the feet on the ground, back against the chair, having emptied their bladder um, prior to measuring blood pressure, no caffeine or exercise, et cetera. And, and it's all there for folks to go through and should, should, should try to incorporate that standard measurement of blood pressure. But even, even if you do that, the device that you use and who does it really makes um, a big difference. So even in these older studies, like from 2011, um, if they took 555 hypertensive patients and just randomized them to a manual versus automated blood pressure, their baselines were similar, but there was about a five-point difference in the systolic and two in the diastolic um, when, it was, when it was measured on an automated machine, lower on the automated machine. Um, and they, those were closer to awake blood pressures. A uh, paper came out in the Journal of the American Heart Association showing that in chronic kidney disease patients using the SPRINT protocol, the automatic blood pressure was 12.7 millimeters lower than using um, the standard manual cuff. And we'll, we'll talk some more about that. So I like this study. It's a bit of an older study, um, but it took 309 patients in an ambulatory care practice, took their blood pressures, um, that were obtained in the office by their physician and then had them go down the hall or across the street to, to a blood pressure clinic um, because they had high blood pressure and they were going to be more intensively managed. So these patients serve as their own controls. And you can see the dramatic differences here um, in the blood pressure. So when the physician measured it, it was 152 over 87. If the patient went down the hall and a technician measured it, it was significantly lower, but again, using the same manual technique. If they did it in the office where the physician was, but used an automated blood pressure cuff, this was the blood pressures that were obtained dramatically lower, um, 20 and 12 um, in terms of the systolic and diastolic. And then here's the gold standard of a 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor. So, so the office oscillatory blood pressure monitor was closest to the gold standard 24-hour and significantly lower than uh, any manual blood pressure, particularly if it's taken by the physician. So, <laughs> so and this is old paper. So what about all these different ways of blood pressure? There's a very nice review that I modified the table from in CJSON. Um, just came out online late last year. I'm not sure if it's in press yet. And it compares these different blood pressure measurement techniques um, and, and some of the important features. So we have manual office blood pressure, automated office blood pressure, home blood pressure, which we're all using more of but don't have a good system to really integrate and certainly hard to integrate into the medical record. Um, and then the gold standard of the automatic, um, the ambulatory blood pressure monitor. So weight code hypertension, 
um, is likely in the office. It's probably a bit reduced, as I showed you from that um, 2009 study. No white coat effect at home and no white coat effect on a 24 monitor. The only one that can give you this important cardiovascular outcome parameter of nocturnal dipping is if you measure blood pressure during sleep, and the only way you can do that is with an ambulatory blood pressure monitor. The data for outcomes is strong. This is mostly driven by those old observational studies, less so because of clinical trials of late, as I've showed you, use the um, oscillatory technique, um, and ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Diagnosis thresholds varies. I won't go into those. We've kind of already reviewed them. Um, and then the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart doesn't specify, but this is their target blood pressure. It doesn't specify manual versus automated. Um, and we've talked about those goals. So this is a really old um, paper from Pickering, published in Hypertension, whoops, in um, 1992. And it, it just took this scattergram of blood pressure of different categories. So these are patients that, based on 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, were normal, because they're over here, but high in the office. These are patients that high, had high 24-hour blood pressure monitors and high in the office. These were normal tensive patients. And then most of you have probably heard of this, but it's a little harder to get our brain around, is this idea of masked hypertension. This is enough to drive us crazy, right? These are patients that have good blood pressure in the office, but you put a monitor on them. And why would you do that? You wouldn't, except if they're part of a clinical trial. And you discover this category of masked hypertension. And it turns out that masked hypertension is associated with these adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Um, so this just came out in 2019, and it's a meta-analysis of all these studies looking at different blood pressure measuring techniques. And on average, the ambulatory, the oscillatory blood pressure is 10 millimeters lower than the office blood pressure, and it's shown down here. Um, and it correlates better, as I'll show you on the next slide. So a difference of about 10 and a half um, millimeters of mercury. And the diastolic was about 4.4. And when this um, office oscillatory blood pressure was compared with daytime ambulatory blood pressure, it was closer, um, um, but still and, and not statistically significant. So in terms of correlating with a gold standard of an ambulatory blood pressure monitor, the office oscillatory um, blood pressure machine is, is, is pretty good. And so before I conclude, I just wanted to... Um, I didn't want to leave without mentioning the importance of diastolic blood pressure. It's something that I pay attention to in clinic. As we talked about, as people get older, with isolated systolic hypertension, the pulse pressure widens. And there is, there's, um, <clears throat> there's reasonably strong data that um, a diastolic below 16, some studies and a little bit lower, is associated with adverse cardiovascular outcomes. I had briefly mentioned the SHEP trial. Um, so a diastolic of less than 60 had an increase um, in this Rotterdam study was at 65. The INVEST trial um, had a similar, and this is just from the INVEST trial, showing that um, with diastolics of less than 60 uh, in that population, there was an increase in the risk of MI, um, not necessarily stroke with this U-shaped curve. So just to wrap up, um, the American Heart recommends this blood pressure of less than 130 over less than 80 in many patients we care for. Um, there are synthesis of randomized control trials. Uh, there's differences in um, the cardiovascular risk profiling. And just to remind you that it terminated early. 
Accurate blood pressure measurement is key. And as I was just sort of updating things, literally published online uh, this week in the uh, journal Hypertension is the American Heart Association scientific statement on measuring blood pressure in humans. It's like 40 pages long, but it has all that we talked about and a lot more um, about some of these nuances and those different techniques of home um, versus 24-hour uh, blood pressure monitor. Um, I like home blood pressure medicine um, monitoring. Um, I think it's, it's, it's the way to go. Um, exactly how to integrate it remains to be seen. Um, I'm, we're all shy of aggressive blood pressure control in the elderly. I think there's really good data that we don't have to be shy. I get shy when the diastolic is 60 or thereabouts. I'm not going to push um, a blood pressure of 155 over 60 with more meds because of my concern of adverse outcomes um, as well as the risk of syncope, et cetera. Um, proteinuria is a risk factor for CKD progression. We've known that. It's sort of substantiated by these studies. Um, and not talked about today is also a risk factor for the cardiovascular disease. My concern is, you know, are we doing any renal harm with these aggressive blood pressure control? I'm willing to live with that if my patients will live longer. Um, and it still remains to be seen how significant um, of, a, of a signal that really is. And then, as with everything in life, a little bit of equipoise. So this is what we would suggest doing. This is what we need for MOC, <laughs> next steps. Um, and then I had a couple of vignettes, but maybe I'll stop um, and allow time for questions and answers. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Um, questions? Yeah. I know for years we've all been talking about the risk of hypertension in blacks. As you look at data today, are you able to differentiate or exclude the issues related to the socioeconomic status in, in the black population as it, as it relates to uh, the, the evidence of uh, hypertension? So it's a great question. I don't, and I really don't know the answer. Um, it's a I'm, I'm sure the socioeconomic environment, as as in all of us, affects our, our affects our blood pressure, and more so in that population. But I don't know if anyone's been able to sort of tease that out um, in terms of in terms of improving outcomes in that population. So, so I wish I had a more substantial answer. Good <laughs> one. So um, I was curious in the SPRINT, ASK, and uh, ACCORD trials if benefit was shown for congestive heart failure and death, but not stroke or CKD in the absence of proteinuria. So is, were those studies adequately powered to show an effect in those uh, areas, or are we to conclude that there's intensive blood pressure measurement management has no role in uh, preventing stroke and CKD? So there are other studies that have shown that intensive blood pressure control um, can, can reduce the incidence of stroke. It was not seen, as you point out, um, in, the sprint, in the SPRINT trial. Um, you know, I don't know what to say. It was terminated early. Had what would have happened if they had gone the full six years? Would we have seen, you know, even more, a stronger signal for survival and crossing over into those other categories? Or would it have, or would they have, or would the curves have started to come together and merge? So I think as great as print was, I think one of the criticisms of the American Heart Association is the heavy emphasis on it without well, I wouldn't say without considering, but 
but the fact is, you know, it is what it is in terms of in terms of the of the duration and the data that we have. Um, I think I, I've never been on a data safety monitoring board. Um, I could have imagined saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't stop this now. But I think it was felt that with this with the clear signal in terms of death that they had to stop it. Um, so that's how we ended up where we are. That was an excellent overview. Thank you for reviewing those trials. We focus a lot on shared decision-making research here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Dartmouth Institute, and we actually have a decision aid that's integrated into EDH for hypertension that automatically pulls variables to inform the ASCDD risk, which is new. It's called health decision. Um, and I think about <coughs> trials like SPRINT and the JNC8 only including randomized trials and what's real world, you know, some of the yeah, exactly. making is understanding those values and preferences. How would you suggest we look at the body of evidence? Should we take into account those observational, more pragmatic trials? Where do you think we're going with regards to trial design and something as preference sensitive as taking blood pressure medicine? I think the first thing we all need to get our head around is how are we going to measure blood pressure? And in my clinic, we are doing it the old-fashioned way. The room is even not, I can't even repeat the blood pressure. So in, at least in my clinic, um, patient comes in, the medical assistant seats the patient in a chair. They use an, an, um, an automatic oscillatory blood pressure machine, but it only measures it once. The newer machines will measure it three or four times over, over several or even six times and give you an average. It can be dumped into EPIC, according to folks at the Cleveland Clinic, so you don't even have to have a manual transcription. Um, and then the blood pressure is, for what I usually do repeat it, um, um, but now I have a patient on an exam table, so um, the cuff is next to the exam table. The chair is over here, so I can't even get the patient back into a chair to repeat the blood pressure. So, so we're going to start working on sort of standardizing that and looking into some of these um, automated machines that are available. Um, and I think I could sell this to my colleagues, some of whom are my age and older, that their blood pressure obtained at the exam table is actually not the gold standard, but that's the one we would typically act on. Um, and we actually may be, you know, maybe making uh, wrong decisions, but misinformed decisions, and that if I can convince them that the blood pressure obtained on entry of the patient into clinic is something that they don't have to repeat, okay, well, there's 45 seconds in your visit that you can do talking about lifestyle or, or, or modifications. But I think there's a big jump there to get my colleagues to, to buy into that. I think there's going to be a resistance despite um, this data. And then what goal are you going to use? Then you probably need to use the goal of the study if you're doing it like the study. So then we're going to target patients to 120 if it, the blood pressure is obtained that way. Um, so there's a gazillion questions. But I like the idea of shared decision-making, and I, you know, we're also, it's, it's also a, it's a useful tool for you know, renal replacement therapy and other kinds of um, things that we do a lot in clinic. But I think it's a good example of are you willing to take another med or two based you know, with this potential benefit? Um, no, yeah. question just about ambulatory monitoring. One of the things we wrestle with is our department has four monitors, and in general we don't charge for it. And the reason for that is that if you set up a charge, the people who are the least likely to be able to pay it get charged an enormous fee. Right. And, and, and so I often get people to do it by saying, we'll do an ambulatory monitor and it's free. Yes. And, and much like That's that. what we do. Yeah. yeah. So, so 
I don't know for the institution, but I think that if we're going to use ambulatory monitoring, because we always get the patients who aren't taking their meds, who are resistant hypertension, who tend to be poor, can't even afford their meds, and the last thing they need is a $1,000 bill for ABP. So, and just getting someone in this rural area to pick it up, go home and live for 24 hours and bring it yeah, back yeah. is not a trivial undertaking. But yeah, yeah. I think that's going to be an issue. We can't yeah. make that into an enterprise, a money-making enterprise, and, and burden patients with another. I agree. Along those lines, it's entirely possible to order a uh, sleep study online, have somebody send you a CPAP machine, test it online, have them send you another one if that doesn't work without ever seeing a physician. And I, if it's not already possible to order a 24 hour ambulatory blood pressure uh, monitor, it probably will be. No, it is. That's how we do it in transplant. You know, that, that's something we can definitely use for our benefit. Um, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the cardiologists have monitors being sent to people's homes and sent back all the time. Why, you could easily do a 24-hour blood pressure monitor. Uh, I have a question about uh, whether you have any information uh, that would help a physician determine whether or not and how much of the blood pressure one should get uh, based upon your data that you show here. Meaning, what is the risk, relative risk, of the treatment, either individually or in some pattern, in what ways you make your decision? So, so if I understand your question, is, is sort of how, how do I or how do we make that decision to add another medicine? Right. Or to start. Or to start. Um, Yeah, the real world. The real world side effects, the real world cost, you know. I mean, 4.2 million more prescriptions, that's the pharmacy, the pharmaceutical companies love that. So they're going to be supporting this. Um, I think it's, um, I mean, I see a lot of patients and I, it's, it's an individual discussion. Um, there, we all have a lot of anecdotal experience of patients that are highly compliant, meticulous. They bring you in their blood pressure curve. They show you, they show it on, on their phone. And at the other extreme, you know, we have patients that we're not even sure they're taking what we think they're giving. Their blood pressure is always high in the office. That's where a 24-hour monitor or home blood pressures could be really helpful. Um, but I don't want someone falling and breaking their hip because, you know, they had a systolic of 80. Um, and patients, and it, and it happens. Um, so, so I think, um, you know, the term equipoise is one that I love. Um, and we, all, we do the best we can for the patient in front of us with some shared decision making, um, being driven by this data, recent data that lower blood pressure, and the, if it's done safely, probably is associated with improved cardiovascular outcomes. I think on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Any other questions?